This is the Wellness for Vets podcast, providing information and resources to improve the wellness of the men and women serving our nation and the first responders who are serving their communities. We'll talk about exercise, nutrition, lifestyle, and alternative practices and emerging therapies for the mind, body, and spirit. Welcome back to another episode of the Wellness for Vets podcast coming to you from the Eagle's Nest in Limerick, Ireland. It's only the second time I got to say that and I almost said Oradi in Romania again. But uh, this, this is our second episode live from the Emerald Isle. And on today's show, uh, we have one of my old buddies, old Marine Corps buddy, Rob Sarah. Rob is a police officer and a, uh, he's just starting to get his uh, feet wet in the contracting. Is that how you explain it? Yeah. Training, training environment, training area. Yeah. All right. And, and I'll let him uh, kind of talk more about that. But one, the reason why he's coming on today is uh, we were having a conversation on, on Facebook not too long ago. And he, he had brought up an interesting topic that I thought would be great for the show. So and that is uh, basically and, and then, Rob, if you want to massage the wording a little bit, but basically <laughs> the gist of it is um, the unique capabilities or, I guess, characteristics of. Uh, having veterans as first responders and, and sort of the, how it works out when you have to deal with other veterans. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just a, some background. So once I got out of the Marine Corps, um, I joined the police department in uh, uh, 2005, uh, just kind of on a whim, um, just took the test. And next thing I know, I got into the Academy and, and I loved it. Um, Coming out of the military, you know, I was a little lost, as I think we all are when we we, we, we hang up those boots for the first time and, and you kind of go, OK, well, what's my mission now? You know, what, what do I do? And a lot of guys fall back into what, what they did before they were in the military. Other guys go completely the opposite way. You know, they want nothing to do with the military anymore. And that's fine. But I think a good majority of us keep looking for that camaraderie and that uh, that action, you know, that that, that adrenaline dump that, you know, getting into it and, 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 and having some purpose. Um, so as soon as I got in the Academy, I was like, man, this is awesome. This is for me training, shooting, running gun and having a good old time and, you know, PT and, and, and a military environment. So, or, or as they, as they call it a, uh, a paramilitary environment. Yeah. Um, so got through the Academy so one, you know, once you hit the street and you're, and you're, and you're out there and you're learning, you got a field training officer, you know, the, the one thing they tell you is kind of forget everything that you, uh, that you learn in the academy. Um, because there's a way to do things on the street and there's a way to do things in the academy. So, you know, book, books and training, and then, you know, actually doing it. Um, like so patrol. Yeah, dude. Yeah. It's, it's pretty nuts. It's what you learn in the um, book and then you have to figure it out once you get boots on the ground. Right. Right. You know, it's, as they say, man, every plan's good to go until the first rounds come down range. And then, you know, you got to start, you got to start dancing. Um, so, you know, you go to, you go to domestics, um, you go to, you know, you deal with people in crisis all the time. Um, and the domestics are really tough because what you've got to do is get into what the heck is going on. It's a very, very emotionally charged environment. Um, you're walking into their den, you're walking into their, you know, their environment. Um, so having somebody come into your environment when you're in crisis, 
and it's the police sometimes can be a real volatile situation. So you really have to learn how to communicate. Now, everyone's trained up in de-escalation techniques um, and, and trained up in, uh, in, in what they used to call verbal judo um, and Jedi. I call it Jedi mind tricking people, um, getting people to do what you want them to do without, you know, without escalating the situation. Um, but when it comes to veterans, especially veterans that are in crisis, um, there is that understanding where you've got a kid who is a police officer, maybe a cop for five, six, seven years, but they've never dealt with what a veteran, a combat veteran has dealt with. Um, and a lot of times that veteran says, Hey, you know what? Uh, you don't understand. You don't get it. Um, and, and, and they go into their mode, you know, they get defensive or they get, you know, they get aggressive, one of the two. So it's very, very important getting back onto your statement about veterans being police officers, um, especially now with all the troops we've had in, in Iraq and Afghanistan and everywhere else coming back. Um, it's important to have that officer that has been there that can really help out and really sit down and take time and look at that veteran as their brother and say, Hey brother, listen, I'm taking off this for a minute, man. Okay. I don't care if you were in the Marines. I don't care if you were in the army or the Navy, but if you did time overseas, Hey, I was overseas. Listen, talk to me. What the hell's going on? You know, I don't want you to be another 22 a day. Let's see what we can do here. And nine times out of 10 that, you know, that drops the, that drops everything down. Um, and what the veteran, what the other officers need to be able to do is put their faith, trust, and confidence in that officer that's on scene um, to be able to handle that situation, to be the contact. Now, are, are these skills, <clears throat> are these ever uh, maybe uh, talked about during police recruiting drives or maybe uh, identified by commanding officers and, and they're able to capitalize on it? See, it's really not. It, it's, it's, you know, in... in, in you know, in 05, 06, 07, 08, 09, it really, really wasn't. Um, I would say it wasn't up until the, uh, the Michael Brown incident um, down there in, uh, in Missouri. Um, that things really, you know, that's when you saw the turn against the police. Um, and there's a lot of anti-police sentiment going on. Uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, hands up, don't shoot. Every officer wants to, you know, murder a, a, young, black, a young black man who's unarmed. Um, so there's, there's been a lot of tension. But what police have done is they've, uh, they've started developing these uh, um, crisis teams, uh, crisis intervention teams, right, where they send officers to training for 40 hours on crisis intervention. Mm -hmm. um, and they're starting to tap on and, and touch on the veteran aspect of it. But again, you can have someone who's got a psychology degree and has been to psych you know, the, uh, the, the crisis intervention training. Um, and if they can't relate to that veteran, it's not going to work. You know, it might, yeah, yeah. but you know, what's better, you know, you walk, you know, I, I wear a, on my body armor, I wear an Eagle Open anchor, small one, um, little reflective EGA on my, on my radio pouch and people see it. Um, and they, you know, Hey, thank you for your service. You know, that whole thing. But I've had guys that are in crisis that see it and go, dude, you're Marine. Yeah, man. What's, what's going on, brother? Oh shit. I want to talk to you. Come here. You know? So it, it really helps. It really helps when you can relate to that veteran. Um, yeah, I, I, you, you're making me think and it's very interesting. Cause I will tell you when, when I was still in, I, I had my fair share of run-ins with PMO. 
Uh, yep. for, for those that don't know, that's the provost marshal office or basically what, what we call the MPs in the Marine Corps. Um, and there was never that feeling of, Hey, we're on the same team. You right. know what I'm <laughs> yeah. But the kind of what you're describing, uh, you know, a lot of times when guys get out, it, it is that, that, um, feeling of loneliness and isolation because they don't have that bond. It's like, everybody can't wait to get out of the service. And then when they do, they're lost. And, right. and now you as a law enforcement officer, uh, who's on scene for whatever the reason, the guy's saying, Oh, there's, there's one of my people. Uh, right. You know, unlike dealing with PMO back in uniform, now the guy actually wants to talk to you. And he's <laughs> like, uh, maybe he thinks, you know, is you somebody you could trust. Right. Right. That's exactly it. You be as a police officer anyway, but you, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. The other, the other aspect of it is the familiarization with, um, you know, especially guys that have been overseas and in combat. Um, the other aspect of this is training uh, and having, you know, if, if you look at what police deal with as far as active shooter scenarios, uh, active shooter incidents, um, you know, having to put rounds down range, uh, concealment cover, you know, return and fire, uh, working effectively under fire, having those, having that skill set. Um, there's, there's a lot of training for that. Um, but nothing, there's nothing that equates to actually being in an environment where you've been under fire before. So, you know, you fought in Fallujah, right? So you're used to urban combat. Um, but, you know, and I've, I've, I've kicked doors in 03. But the thing is, kicking a door for real overseas and then coming back home and having to do it for real and knowing what to do, how to do it, getting into that training mode. But more importantly, training up your officers around you to that same level. So veterans be, can become huge assets in law enforcement as far as leadership, um, but also as far as tactical training. You know, I mean, the, the last department I was at full time, um, I was one of the range officers, uh, one of the firearms instructors, and I was given a, a, a period of instruction on uh, the AR-15 to uh, newer officers and even some senior officers. A lot of them didn't even know how to take that weapon apart, um, which was which was shocking to me, which was very, very shocking. Um, so getting into that and, and, and teaching them the basics that we learned in boot camp, you know, I mean, you know, everything, you know, that rifle intimately. Um, and it's the same weapon system. I was just telling a story the other day that when I was in the delayed entry program, you know, we went down to the reserve center and they showed us how to break down the M16. Yeah. When I got to boot camp, I thought I was shit hot. <laughs> we were cleaning our stuff and it was one of those ones where it's just, Hey, give it a quick wipe down. But I'm like, mm -hmm. I'm awesome. I'm going to break it all the way down. And then the DI is like, put your trash together now. And I was like scrambling. I was like, oh, God, I hope I remember how this goes. And then I racked the bolt. And I just heard the clunk. Uh oh. You know that sound when you forget to put the buffer spring in the thing? Yep. And the bolt got yep. stuck in the butt stock. And I was like, oh, my God. Oh, God. Places I know it just ended. But right. so I, yeah, I can appreciate that today. <laughs> how to do that. Um, yeah. Rob, let's back up a little bit. So you were in for uh, 10 years. Yeah. Right. Yep. And, uh, now, I, I do remember um, when when you got out, I, I remember you were going through an emotional time. Uh, yeah. We'll yeah. And, and I think you got me involved in the, 
uh, what was it? IAVA, Iraq and Afghanistan. Yeah, Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America. Yep. And so you were really uh, involved from from I guess an early age with the uh, the all the veteran stuff that was coming out of the global war on terror. Yeah. So. <sighs> It was it was wild for me because, you know, getting back on to finding a purpose and, and getting back in with your people. Right. Um, oh, three was oh, three was oh, three. You know, it was it was the first time we were in combat and it was pretty crazy. And there was a lot of political crap around it. Um, I uh, I had a pretty rough experience uh, when I was overseas. Um, and when I got back and got out. Uh, I was looking for someone to be able to talk to about it. But at the same time, I also wanted to use my experience and my voice to be able to tell people back home what it's like to be a, uh, a first, you know, the, the frontline infantryman and what we go through and what we went through on a daily basis, you know, to tell that story and, and to get the media the hell out of it and get us into it and say, hey, look, here's what's actually going on over there. And this is what we're dealing with day to day. Um, so I got in with some, uh, you know, my, my mother was very active. Um, she was not real happy about the war. Uh, she, uh, um, you know, she was very uh, vocal about it. Uh, didn't want the war going on. Uh, disagreed with what was happening with it. Um, and her platform was that, you know, my son is there and I support my son, but I don't support the, the choice we made. Um, so when I got out and I needed to, uh, vent and, and, and get that part of me out, that part out of me. Um, she hooked me up with some people she had been talking to who were, uh, uh, Vietnam veterans. So I talked with them and they introduced me to some other Iraq veterans. And these guys were, you know, all against the war as well. So I started talking with them and hanging out with them and, and, and discussing our issues with them. Um, as I was with them for about four or five months, I realized, you know what, these aren't the guys, th this isn't the message that needs to be put across. We're trying not to politicize this thing. And that's what these guys are doing. A lot of them, one of the most outspoken guys had been in the air force on like Guam or something and was putting, was putting bombs on aircraft. And he said, Oh, I got post-traumatic stress from putting bombs on aircraft, knowing they're going bombing. I'm like, dude, no, what, what? It, you know, nothing. I'm not trying to downgrade your experience and what may have personally happened to you, but that's not what this is about, right? We're talking about guys on the ground, boots on the ground, you know, first in. So I separated away from them. Um, now, because of the way I, I articulated myself and was able to speak in front of, uh, in front of crowds, I was invited um, by some other people that I met. Hey, we want you to go to Notre Dame. I actually spoke at Notre Dame in front of 600 people. And, and I'm hearing about this. <laughs> yeah, I know. Right. I know. I kept the kind of quiet. Um, but I, I spoke in front of 600 people and talked about my, um, uh, my views. Um, and the first thing I said was, look, you know, everyone wants to make this political and that's not what this is about. You know, um, when you get overseas, politics goes out the window. It's the, it's about the guy next to you. Um, and it's about what we're doing. And, you know, you've got Democrats, Republicans, independents, whoever overseas fighting. So we don't care about the politics and I don't care about the politics. If you agree with the war, great. If you don't, fine. But here's the story. And this is frontline experience. This is what is actually happening over there. This was my story. This is what happened to me. And it got, uh, you know, it got, uh, it got some good reviews, man. Um, but my point was just getting the damn story out there, you know, cutting through all the chaff and letting people understand what, 
what it's about from personal experience. Um, so I realized when I met my wife, I met my wife in 04. Um, and I was kind of right in the middle of it when I met her. Uh, and then she started talking with me and then her, uh, her dad was a Vietnam vet. Um, and it was great because he and I met and he really kind of opened up to me because he said, you know, we didn't, when I was in Vietnam, we didn't really talk much about our experiences because we were so overshadowed by everybody. So this is kind of a breath of fresh air. And I was able to, you know, sit and have beers with him and talk about his experience and my experience. It was good talking to another combat veteran, you know, he was in the army. Um, and that's where it starts. Um, the one thing I can say is if you are a, a, a veteran, um, I don't care if you served in 03 and I don't care if you served in 2018. If you right now, the guys we're, we're talking to, whoever's listening to this, um, if you're in some kind of crisis or you're, you're down, dude, reach out, man, join a, join a, uh, a Facebook veterans group and let people know, Hey, I'm, I'm not having a, a good time here. I need, I need some help. It's okay to reach out for that help. It is. We're here to support each other. Um, and, and, you know, you never know, you may find somebody that's going to help you find a mission, you know? So that's, that's the main thing about it is finding that mission and getting, getting some direction again, um, and finding something you love and, and just getting after it. It's, it's really interesting. Uh, you know, social media is, is a strange beast. It, it gets a lot of bad publicity, but it does some really good things too. And, you know, I just, for an instance, we were talking the other day that it turns out one of your buddies lives two hours up the road from me. So. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Whenever the ban gets lifted on this quarantine, you know, we'll <laughs> get to hang out. Yeah. But uh, so how much time between when you got out did you get your first police job? Is it uh, into right away or? Yeah. So I went, I got out. Uh, my EAS date was April of 04. Um, I came back home to Chicago. I actually got out early. So I took, you know, I took some, took some leave on the back end. And uh, so I was back in Chicago in March. Um, and then my, uh, I met my, I met my wife in April, um, April before I met her. Uh, and then in, let's see, in November, uh, I took the test for, for the police and I was in the Academy January of 05. So January 10th of 05, I was, you know, in uniform and, and reporting at day one of the Academy. And then I graduated, actually graduated on St. Patrick's day, which is well, crazy. March 17th. So it was, right, it was right cool. out around Chicago or. Yeah. So, um, I initially started with the, uh, Chicago department of aviation. So it was like the, uh, an arm of CPD. Okay. Uh, but they were at the airport, so they do their own tests and everything else. Um, so I got out there and was doing some work at the airport. Uh, and then I, um, while I was there, I realized that it wasn't what I wanted to do. I wanted to get like municipal and, and be out on the street. Um, so the way it works is you get certified as a law enforcement officer in the state of Illinois. So you get your, uh, you get your certification, right? Once you have that certification, it's the same certification across the board for anyone that's working the street. So you can then lateral transfer over to other departments. You know, you've got to take a test or, or do an interview and do a background and all that but then you can easily get into a different department. So I just transferred over to uh, Cook County Forest Preserve Police. Um, so kind of like a conservation uh, type police, but we also work the street with Cook County Sheriff's, which is outside of Chicago. Right. Um, so we were starting to back those guys up. And then we would also back up other small municipalities, so smaller towns uh, that were doing traffic stops out on our perimeters or what have you. 
Um, and as I was working there, I started meeting guys from other departments and talking to them and just kind of networking. Uh, and then found out that uh, there was uh, some other departments hiring. And then uh, the last department I got onto in 2008 was uh, Roselle Police Department. And that was where I really, where the rubber really met the road. Um, it was a 32 uh, man department, uh, a town of about 25,000 people. Um, working 12 hour shifts, uh, you know, suburban middle-class, uh, um, neighborhood, uh, town. Uh, it was, it was great, man. Uh, had a lot of good training, uh, a lot of really good people, um, was really getting into, uh, into a lot of stuff was a school resource officer for a year. So I worked in high school, uh, was a bike officer. So in the summertime, you know, put on the, Ew, yeah. put, on the put on the clown suit and go out there and, and ride the bike around. Um, did uh, a lot of rapid response training, uh, got into active shooter training, uh, became a firearms instructor. Um, so really started laying the groundwork and moving my career, career along. Um, and it was, it was great, man. I had a really, really good time doing it. So when we had talked the other night, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, you had mentioned to me, we were talking about the, uh, welfare checks. Yeah. Uh, can, can you just kind of explain those and, you know, how, have you been on a lot? Maybe uh, if there's any in particular that you could share the experience and, you know, kind of going back to the main topic of what, what you're bringing to the table and, and having to deal with the veterans. Yeah. So you get, you know, you get a, a, a variety of different calls, you know, the great, as they say about police work, you got a, uh, you got a front row seat to the greatest show on earth. You know, it's, it, it's, it's pretty crazy, man. I mean, it is a, there are days when it's a circus and I'm surprised there aren't more books written out there about, about police work. Cause it is just, it's crazy. Um, for those of you who are wondering what real police work is like, you know, there are a bunch of movies out there. The one that a lot of us in law enforcement really relate to is end of watch. Um, I don't know if you've seen it with, uh, uh, Jake Gyllenhaal, um, were there Los Angeles police officers? No, I don't think so. So the great thing about that, you know, they're, uh, they're two patrol guys that work a kind of a rough area of, of Los Angeles. Um, and they, uh, they get involved, like, you know, doing some, uh, working, working against cartels. Um, and, and they just kind of stumble onto it. But the great thing about this movie is that it shows that they spend a lot of time inside the squad car and these guys just bullshitting with each other. You know, I mean, they're just, they're just back and forth and it's just, it's so realistic because you go from working midnights and banging coffee or, or drinking monsters or whatever, trying to stay awake, um, you know, chewing, chewing Copenhagen and, and just doing that, uh, all of a sudden to a, a hot call, you know, where you got shots fired or you're kicking doors in or something like that. Um, it's, it's very much police works very much like combat where it's, you know, a lot of boredom. Um, and a lot of, a lot of just waiting around and then moments of, of high intensity, you know, getting after something. Um, so some of those calls are, you know, calls for service. It's not all bank robberies and, 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 you know, pulling cars over and car chases and all that and gunfights. And you get a lot of these calls, calls for service, which could be, you know, the neighbor, um, hasn't seen their neighbor in two weeks and the mail's piling up and, you know, we're not sure where Bob is, uh, but no one's seen him. So you go to the house and you knock on the door and you're like, all right, what's going on? You know, sometimes someone's committed suicide and you're, you know, forced an entry into a building. And the first thing that hits you is the smell of that decomposing body. And it's no fun. You realize, oh, okay, I know what we got. Um, 
but other times, and this is the, uh, one of the best ones I've had as far as uh, veterans go. Um, it was a domestic call. So, you know, domestic violence, uh, basically domestics aren't always people, people in physical fighting. Um, it's just an argument. You're right. You know, people arguing back and forth. So the wife calls, uh, she says that, uh, you know, her, her husband's losing his mind. He's yelling, he's screaming, he's throwing stuff around the house, blah, 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 blah. He's, you know, not letting me back in. He kicked me out, whatever. So we roll up on scene and uh, then she says, as we're heading over there, she calls back and says, hey, you know, he put his hands on me. So now, okay, we're looking at a, at a domestic, a physical domestic situation. Um, so it ramps up the, it ramps it up a little bit. So we get there and uh, the, the subject, the male is sitting in the front yard on a bench by a tree. Um, and I go up to make contact with him and we start talking and he is a Marine Corps veteran. Um, younger guy, uh, had been overseas in, I think he was over there in 2006, 2007, um, and has been dealing with, you know, post-traumatic stress and alcohol and, 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 uh, found out he had cancer. Um, so he was a mess. So I took the time and sat down with him and started talking to him about, okay, what's going on, brother? You know, what's, what's happening? And he and I related to each other on that Marine Corps level. And what it turned out was, you know, he had, he had put his hands on his wife and she had some, uh, you know, she had some, some apparent bruising, uh, you know, some apparent injury. Uh, and when we see that, it means we've got to take you in, you know, you're, you're we gotta, we gotta, gotta arrest you. Um, but I was able to talk to him and get him away and say, Hey, listen, you know, here's the deal, brother. I've got to take you in. All right. But when we do that, I want to do everything I can to make this as easy as it, as it can for you, but also get you some help on the backside. So once we got him handcuffed and he was completely, uh, you know, completely compliant, um, got him in the back of the car. I transported him. Uh, I took, you know, I took a lead on the, on him. Um, and once I got him in the squad car, you know, he started opening up to me a little more. Uh, we get back to the station um, and I was talking to him and I'm like, Hey, listen, you know, I'm going to put some notes in the report here and I'm going to make a call to the, uh, to the state's attorney um, and see if we can get you into the veterans court. So this is something that they've started to do uh, or they had started to do. And they're still doing now that uh, in DuPage County where I was working um, and the veterans court deals with drugs, alcohol, domestic violence, uh, that type of thing. And takes into account, what is going on with the veteran? But instead of getting locked up, they assign them and have them go through counseling. Um, and it's in joint with the VA. Um, so I got him into veterans court. Uh, and he came out on the backside and really, you know, thanked me for that and said, thanks a lot and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, it, it worked out really well for him. Um, and then he, he, he kept in touch with me. And then uh, when he actually, when he went to court, um, everything got thrown out because the wife said that she actually did that bruising to herself. Like she, oh, she's yeah. like banging her, her head off the wall or, you know, whatever she was doing. Um, so fast forward, and this is what's funny in 2018 or 2017, uh, I left the police department. Uh, I was getting uh, a full time. I was getting kind of burned out on it and needed to, needed to take a step back, concentrate on my family and my wife and, and myself. Um, so I started working for Gruntstyle, 
right? Um, so the funny thing is, though, when I went to uh, when I went to apply for the uh, sales position at, at Grunstyle, the HR guy was this dude I had arrested. No, no kidding. Right? So he's like, hey, brother, I know you. And I'm like, what do you mean you know me? And he said, you arrested me at Roselle. And I'm like, oh, shit. Okay. So I start going back in my, in my brain housing group. And I'm like, okay, wait a second. Who is this guy? And, you know, does this mean I'm not getting this job? <laughs> um, but he was, he was, you know, hey, man, that was great. And I really thank you for what you did. And it got me back on track. And I got this job here. And, you know, you told me to find a mission. And here I am with Grunstyle and all guys in the military. Um, and it's been great and I've been thriving and things were wonderful. So I thank you very much for that. So that's, that's the type of thing that can happen. You know, I mean, that's, that's where it, that's where it gets going. And, you know, it may not be that, that good of a, a, a an ending to the story, um, every time, but there's always that potential, uh, to get somebody back on track and that's, you know, backtracking and, and going back to what we were talking about in the very beginning. That's why it's important that you've got veterans on your department that have that experience and that can articulate and that can, you know, uh, uh, make contact with that service member, um, and, and help them out any way they can. Well, I mean, that right there is a, a pretty amazing story. Uh, you know, good on that guy, good on you and good on that guy for turning himself around. Uh, I'm curious, have you had much, uh, but when you go on these calls or, or you're dealing with, you know, the suicidal people, depressed, whatever, to, how often do you come across prescription drugs? Oh, all the time. All the time. Um, it's, you know, either someone's off their meds or they're, uh, you know, they're combining alcohol and drugs. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, it's funny, man. You look at today's society and it seems like everybody's on some type of prescription you know, either ADD or, you know, uh, what, whatever the hell they're on. Um, so everyone is just, it's just, you know, medicated, medicated, medicated. Uh, and if somebody gets used to that, as, as you, as, as you would know from, you know, dealing with health and welfare and all, and all the rest of it, you know, with tobacco, with drugs, with, with whatever it is, you know, that first time you, you take it in, it has a shock to your system. But as your body adjusts and gets used to it, you need more and more and more and more and more to stay level. Um, and that's what that's what tends to happen. You know, once you break off of that or you come off of it, then someone starts getting into into a situation where they're losing themselves mentally uh, or physically. Um, and then, as usual, you know, throw in the police to that. Yeah. You know, so when, when someone calls 911 or the police show up for us, it's just another call, but that can be someone's worst day they're ever had, you know? Um, so yeah, the prescription drug things is big. It, it's big, man. We're seeing a lot of overdoses. Um, the opium epidemic, uh, is, is huge right now. Uh, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of heroin use. Um, and one of the things we're seeing, you know, we're, mandated now to carry Narcan. Right. Uh, which means if someone is on an opiate and they overdose, we come in, we give them this nasal spray and it, it usually wakes them up. Um, and the thing is though, what they've mandated is that if we use Narcan on somebody, we can't make that arrest. Hmm. 
I'll say that again. If we use Narcan on somebody, we cannot make an arrest, right? Because we call the medics and the medics come in and they, and they take them to the hospital. Doesn't matter if there is a pile of heroin in that room. That's it. We can't charge them with anything. Wow. So then what tends to happen is these, you know, the people know, all right, well, I got, I got, I got Narcan, you know, I got brought back and usually two, three weeks later, we're back the same place. And it's the same story again and again and again. So it's turned into this vicious cycle. Um, but they don't want these people being charged. Uh, and one of the reasons for that is people that are at a house for an overdose. So, you know, they're at a party or whatever, and someone ODs, whoever calls 911 can't be charged either because they don't, they would rather save lives um, and let people understand that it's okay to call the police and that we're not going to come in and just start arresting people. Uh, because if they know that, you know, hell, people aren't going to call the cops. They're not going to call yeah. 911. Uh, yeah, I mean, I you can see pros and cons to both. I mean, shoot, I could probably, uh, I don't know if this is the right platform, but I would love to do a detailed rundown on the drug epidemic. Oh, yeah. Um, well, let this, uh, one, one, eventually I'm going to do a couple shows on, uh, Entrepreneuring. There were some guys who had filled out my poll and they wanted to see some stuff on that. And as we were talking a little bit ago, you uh, are involved in the launching of a, a business. So you, you want to tell us a little bit about that one? Yeah. So right now I work for a company called Controlled Force. Um, Controlled Force is a military and law enforcement training company. Uh, I've been in business since 1997. Uh, I'm the director of business development right now, but I'm also heading up the uh, de-escalation, situational awareness, and civilian training side of the house. Um, so, so it's a husband and wife company. Uh, they started off teaching defensive tactics, driving around. In a, they're always uh, prideful to talk about how they got their start. Um, and he was a, uh, he's a martial arts guy. Uh, out of Chicago is a former Chicago cop. Um, he and his wife started going out and, uh, and he ran a, uh, uh, he ran a, a studio, a martial arts studio. Um, and they came up with, um, a system for defensive tactics that is not violent. So not using any strikes, it's more of a, a subject control, uh, um, system. Uh, and that system was, you know, thrown out to a couple of police departments. So they were driving around in their van across the country, going from PD to PD, just kind of showing off, Hey, you know, this is, this is our system. And what do you think? And, and it started to take off. Um, and you know, that's kind of where they started building their business. Uh, so from there, they actually began, uh, contracting with the, uh, with the U S military and, and going in for some military contracts. And one of the first contracts they got was with the U S air force, uh, with the, uh, the air force MPs or PMO. I think they're not sure what they're called. Is it SPs or whatever, whatever the heck they are. Security forces. Yeah. Security forces. So they, uh, they started working with them and they got a contract with them. Um, from there, they started bringing more guys on that had some tactical experience and started teaching uh, tactical movement, uh, started teaching firearms, uh, that type of thing. So it really started taking off uh, in 2000. That's when they started getting their first contracts. From there, uh, the past the past two years I've been there, um, they were last year before this whole pandemic thing hit. Uh, we sent a training cadre over to Micronesia. Um, and they stood up the first national police academy uh, in Micronesia. Um, so all of our instructors are former military or former law enforcement guys. Uh, 
me being 48 years old, strangely enough, I'm the youngest instructor they have. <laughs> uh, and the reason for that is you get some guys that are long in the tooth that have a lot of experience and can bring a lot to the table. Um, you know, we, we love the young hard chargers, but at the same time, you get a young hard charger out of the military. All they have is that military experience. They don't have any experience doing anything else. That's good experience to have. But at the same time, in order to be a good instructor, a, you've got to have the, uh, you've got to have the, the, the wherewithal to understand you're always a student. Um, you always have to get yourself better and improve and, and, and hone your skills and open your mind to different ways of doing things. Um, but then again, you know, having that knowledge and then moving forward and being able to articulate that, uh, and, and teach these guys is a big deal. Cool, man. Well, it sounds like that's all working out, I guess. Uh, and, and you, how much time do you think you got left with the law? Oh, I'm going to stay in the laws as, as long as I can, man. Um, right now I'm working, uh, I'm working for a part-time, uh, a very small municipality, uh, about, uh, 4,000 people. Uh, it's a real rural town. Um, to, I call it a one horse town. Um, there are, uh, about 3000 residents, uh, 10 officers, uh, we're all on a part-time capacity. Um, but it's, I'm going to stay with it as long as I can, man. I mean, my, my initial retirement was going to be 58. Uh, so we're still looking at another 10 years. Um, but, uh, I'm going to stay in and, and roll with it as long as I can, man, until I, until I just can't do it anymore. It's just a great thing to be able to do and keeps me young, keeps me in shape. And, and, and it's a lot of fun. Cool. I'm glad you're enjoying it. Um, I think, I think that's about it, man. Um, if you want to hang on when I, I'll draw this to an end and we, we can shoot the shit on the backside for a few minutes. Sounds good, brother. Um, you got any parting words or uh, any plugs uh, or anything you want to throw out? Yeah, just, you know, again, man, um, for all of you young veterans that may be listening to this and guys just getting out or guys that are in, you know, um, keep your head about you. Get that mission. Um, you know, figure out what you're, what you're looking to do and run with it. You know, charge, charge on, man. Follow your dream. Follow what you can. Um, and keep a positive attitude, you know, find that next mission. Um, just real quick, just to, just to break in, I got a, uh, I did a, uh, I did a presentation at, uh, the chamber of commerce. Uh, I was doing some civilian training, uh, for situational awareness. And there was a, uh, uh, a woman that was, uh, administering, uh, she's administrator at the studio that we were at, uh, or at the venue we were at. Um, she ended up giving me a call about three weeks after my, uh, uh, after my presentation and said, Hey, you know, I was at a bar the other night talking to a friend of mine and he had a buddy with him, uh, that's a Marine, uh, that just got out, uh, did like 20 years in the Marine Corps. Um, and he's really having a hard time and he's here in, he's, he's, he lives here in town. Uh, and I said, well, great, you know, give me, give me his number. Um, and it was one of those things where I met him out for a, for a beer, um, introduced myself. And, you know, of course we, uh, we connected on that Marine Corps, uh, background that we both had. And that was his issue is that he got out and he did not have a mission. He was just floundering. Um, so I kind of got him, I set him straight a little bit and said, Hey man, you know, stay in touch with me, figure out what you, I said, what do you want to do? And he goes, man, I want to teach. I'm like, well, where are you at? And he goes, well, I'm kind of going to school right now to get my teaching degree. And I'm like, well, get it done, dude. I mean, get on that. You know, that's your mission right now. You know, that's what you need to do. Um, you know, look at it as, as an in doc, right? I mean, 
make it through. Your job right now is to make it through no matter how hard it gets. Keep that in your sights and get done with it, right? Push through it. So he's he's pushing through right now. We talk about once a week um, on the phone and, hey, man, checking in. How you doing? Hey, I'm good. You know, whatever. If he's having a hard time, he'll shoot me a text and say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm dealing with this. I'm dealing with that. So that's the most important thing. You know, we looked out for each other on the battlefield. Look out for each other back home, man. Um, it's it's, it's one of the best things you can do. Yeah. I think, uh, I don't know if anybody would ever admit or use the verbiage, you know, I don't have a mission, but if, if people just take a minute and I mean, they think that, I mean, this is what we know, right? right. If, if you do the minimal four years, within those four years, you have plenty of missions, you know, things that had to get done before you got your free time or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I, yeah, whether it, you're, slinging coffee as a barista or, you know, working as a police officer or fireman or a teacher, like you really have to find that mission. And I think in doing so you will find at least one person that you can connect with on a a very deep level, but it's really having a sense of that mission, you know, with going to school, you know, there's something that you need to accomplish and, and you need to be the best at it. That's it. That's it, man. That's it, brother. All right, Rob. Well, this has been fun, man. And, and thanks yeah, for reaching out and uh, coming up with the idea. Yeah, sure. Thanks for, thanks for inviting me on, man. It was great. You've reached the end of another episode of the Wellness for Vets podcast. If you enjoyed today's show, you can subscribe on iTunes, Anchor FM, and Google Podcast. You can also head over to our website, wellnessforvets.info, to gain access to show notes, resources, and ways to connect with me on social media. I'd also appreciate a rating on iTunes or simply tell a friend about the show. That would help us reach more people. Until next time, thank you.